Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Ben Blyer about his article, Endonasal Instrumentation and Aerosolization Risk in the Era of COVID-19, Simulation, Literature Review, and Proposed Mitigation Strategy. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by Carl Storrs. Carl Storrs enables anywhere care with the new flexible slimline video rhino laryngoscope, ideal for narrow airways or anxious and pain-sensitive patients. The new Telepac Plus enables an improved clinician experience through a large HD display and a small footprint in the already compact office and clinic space. Integrated recording and playback enhances patient and family education and leads to greater patient satisfaction. The new Slimline Video Rhino Laryngoscope, coupled with the new Telepac Plus, enables diagnostic and post-acute visualization anywhere. Please visit www.carlstores.com to find out more. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm the guest host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas at Houston. I've invited Dr. Ben Blyer from Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston to discuss his recent paper entitled Endonasal Instrumentation and Aerosolization Risk in the Era of COVID-19, Simulation, Literature Review, and Proposed Mitigation Strategy. Hi, Ben. And thanks for your time today. Hope you're staying hey, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am. It's tough, but it's good to be here. Good. Thank you. So your group study is very timely given the pandemic we're all living and working through. And as you know, and maybe seeing it firsthand, there's been a lot of anxiety, especially in the ENT field, about our potential exposure to the virus given our area of expertise. However, there's really little data to help guide us on some specific procedures and exams and or patients to determine exactly what's appropriate, what mitigation guidelines are necessary. And I think yours is the first, and I hope of many, to come. So can you give us a little background of how the study came about, the idea for the study? Yeah. So I think, like you said, when the pandemic was declared and it was clear that we were going to have significant infections coming to our shores, there was a lot of anxiety in the community. And I think with our sort of increase in social media presence and doc matter forums and so forth, I was seeing a lot of people discussing their concerns, discussing ways that they thought things could be mitigated, how they were going to treat their patients. But what was also clear, and this was true for myself, was that we had very little understanding of what these different parameters were. The concept of aerosolization, the concept of personal protective equipment, these just aren't things that as ENTs we're, we're intimately familiar with unless, you know, it's folks who are dealing with infectious diseases. And so for me, it began as more just a, a, an attempt to educate myself to get a better understanding of what the real risks were and what the actual sort of physiology of aerosol generation was. And in doing so, it became clear that a lot of the recommendations, not just from individuals and anecdotal opinion, but even within our own institutional policies, was based on a paucity of information. And so it became clear that, first of all, we needed to sort of codify the literature so that we could understand for an ENT audience what the actual issues at play were. But then, more importantly, it became clear that, as you mentioned, there was really no evidence of how these things interacted with the specific types of procedures and diagnostic studies that we do as ENTs and specifically as rhinologists. 
And so the study came about essentially to, at least in a preliminary fashion, begin to probe some of these questions so that we could get a handle on where we need to go in the future as far as getting more into the granular data. It sounds like when I was looking at your paper, you sort of modeled two really common scenarios. So can you describe your first series of experiments modeling like sneezing and and some of the details on the study? The reason we broke it out into those two things, really, it directly comes out of really an understanding of what aerosolization is. And when we think about how the human body generates aerosols or these physiologic aerosols, A lot of work has been done on this going back to the 80s. And what's clear is that aerosols actually are generated in the small respiratory bronchioles and down to the level of the alveoli. It's not in the large conducting airways more proximal in the system. And so once we understand that, it becomes clear that when the CDC and the WHO look at meta-analyses and studies on what we call aerosol-generating procedures, these are all procedures that interact with the native airway. These are procedures that pump air into the airway or instrument the airway, and you're directly communicating with these respiratory bronchioles. That's very different than a surgical scenario where you have an endotracheal tube with a cuff up and the airway is occluded. So it became clear that these are two entirely different instances that we have to treat differently, one of which we encounter all the time in our outpatient and diagnostic setting, that being endoscopies, the Breedman's, and outpatient procedures, But the other, the surgical aspect, is completely different. And I think what was even more salient was that I think a lot of the issues and concerns regarding the nasopharyngeal viral titers and so forth and how that would uh, affect uh, infectious transmissibility came out of these reports of skull-based procedures resulting in significant infection. So it sort of began with the concern about the surgical implications, but actually it turns out that for us, In some respects, the more important question is the outpatient situation. Uh And that's why we started by looking at at that. And so, and to your point, what we wanted to do was mimic what we would call a patient-generated, irritative aerosol-generating procedure. And what that means is that when we instrument the airway with a rigid endoscope or really or a flexible nasopharyngolaryngoscope, those are not intrinsically aerosol-generating, at least by the definitions that we understand. Because to generate aerosols, you need high airflow, high pressures over that air-liquid interface. Just by placing a probe into the nose, that does not in and of itself generate aerosol. Now, we know that because there have actually been studies looking at, for example, putting NG tubes into the airway, and that epidemiologically has not been shown to result in a higher risk of healthcare worker infection. Similarly, the common now nasopharyngeal swabs that are done to detect COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus those are also not considered aerosol generating. So the mere instrumentation of the airway with cold instruments at at slow velocities Mm -hmm. do not generate aerosols. But what they can do is they can irritate the patient to sneeze or cough. And that, unfortunately, does generate aerosols. And so that's why we wanted to mimic that scenario. And so what we did was we took a um, mucosal atomizer, which can generate particles between about 30 to 100 microns. Now, it's important to understand, and this is a, a limitation of the study, is that these particles, the 30 to 100 micron particles, are in the range, what we would classically consider in the range of droplet precaution type of transmission, not airborne. And airborne particles is very different because airborne particles are the smaller particles, typically less than 5 microns. These are the particles that are concerning for um, widespread diffusion in air, lingering in air, and direct inhalation into the distal airway. So our study did not look specifically at those, but, but what we wanted to do was at least, as I mentioned, get a handle on 
what type of aerosolization contamination you get with these procedures. So we use a mucosal atomizer to mimic the sort of the force of a fluid expulsion during a sneeze. So we put the tip of the atomizer inside a a cadaver nose, and then we generated a force. And then we looked to just see generally how does the nose shape the spread of these droplets as they exit the nose. And really what in this case more specifically was the internal valve because the tip of the atomizer was just behind the internal valve. At that point, we said, okay, now how do we mitigate this? And the idea here is that there's a reasonably robust literature to suggest that wearing a surgical mask can significantly decrease the spread of aerosol as you generate it. And that's why actually there's a lot in the media now about people wearing masks in the mm-hmm. public, even if they're asymptomatic, because it's quite effective at doing that. And in fact, there are studies that even have looked at coronavirus, this is SARS-CoV, but coronavirus particles and, and wearing a surgical mask, you essentially eliminate even airborne particle spread while ma- wearing a mask when you sneeze, when you cough or talk. So that was why we wanted to mimic that. So we use a surgical mask and indeed at least to the level of our, the limitations of our study, we showed that, that the mask essentially abrogates that aerosolization contamination. But what we then want to do is take it a step further, because obviously this is something that all of us have been thinking about, is how do we get patients back into our clinic safely, right. both from a contamination of, of us as providers, but also a contamination of the room, the equipment, and the potential next patient that's coming in the room. So knowing that surgical masks intrinsically can can reduce aerosol spread, we then wanted to come up with a way to create a barrier-type mask that you could place an endoscope through. And this is where this concept of the vent mask or the valved endoscopy of the nose, nose and throat mask came into play because we anticipate that this can also be used for doing oral exams. Essentially, the idea here is that by using materials that are common in every clinic room being a a mask, a glove, and a stapler, and a scissor, you can create a sort of a three-layer barrier with a narrow slit. So you have a a glove on the inside and outside of the mask and then the intervening mask material. And then when you make a small slit in that, you can pass the endoscope through, and it's essentially a watertight seal such that with the scope in place or with rapid removal of the scope during a sneeze, it will seal off that small slit and still prevent aerosol spread. Now, what's important also the point to make is that we tested just having a hole in the mask without the added glove material. And that's that's your perforated mask. That's the perforated mask, exactly. And that still allowed aerosol through. I think that you really do need to take that extra step of creating those barriers as opposed to just cutting a hole in a mask. I think that's not enough. A couple questions. For the perforated mask was where you made a, a small hole where your scope went through, and in that you still had particles leaving when you simulated the sneeze with the mucosal atomizer device. It still had particles coming out from the, mm-hmm. the mask. Okay. couple questions. With sneezing, as would be the most common kind of aerosolizing, irritative portion of doing the nasal endoscopy, what do you know about like how small those aerosols can get versus what you were able to generate? generate with the mucosal atomizer device. Are the sneezings mm-hmm. will go down to like the two or three microns that we know can stay in the environment for maybe up to three hours? Before I answer that question, let me just back up to clarify something you said. You said, you know, sneezing is probably the most aerosol generating thing that we would do. Now, it's actually, if you look at the literature, because aerosols are generated in the distal airway, mm-hmm. the literature actually suggests that simple talking will generate a higher concentration of aerosols than coughing and, and as a, as a uh, side sneezing. 
And the, the thought behind that is that when you cough, because you're generating a significant intrathoracic force, you're actually not recruiting all of those distal airways. Now, what it is true that when you cough or sneeze, the velocity of the particles is higher, so they'll go further, but mm. you actually generate more by speaking. And that's a really important point for several reasons. The first is that's why it's important to wear masks in public, at least in my opinion, in asymptomatic patients, because it, is, it seems to me that it can be spread just by talking because that just that act alone can generate aerosols. But the other issue is that when we when you go back and you look at the rate of infection of healthcare providers, there were some early reports of ENTs and ophthalmologists being at a higher risk relative to other providers in China. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we all said, well, ENTs, yeah, you know, you're scoping the airway, you're close to the patient. And that made sense, but it didn't make sense to me. Why would an ophthalmologist have a higher risk? But then it occurred to me is that when you're doing fundoscopic exams and your face, the ophthalmologist's face is right up against an asymptomatic patient who's speaking to them, they're mm-hmm. essentially inhaling those aerosols that presumably are coming from just the patient speaking. So that makes a lot of sense to me that that simple, that that just the act of talking and breathing can generate aerosols. But now to go back to your other question, as far as particle size, you know, in the literature, it's not there. I couldn't find anything regarding sneezing, but there is literature on coughing. And in the coughing, certainly particles can go down to the airborne size, although the majority are over eight microns. So the majority tend to be more droplets. But, but certainly it can generate particles with, in the airborne sort of end of the continuum. And so I think you have to assume that sneezing can generate airborne particles. The other thing also to bear in mind is that, that these numbers, you know, 100 microns for droplet and 5 microns for airborne, these are not cut and dry, obviously. This, is, this all exists on a, on a continuum. And I think it's also important to understand that, for example, a 30 or 20 micron droplet, as it moves through the air and starts to evaporate, can become a five micron droplet, what's called a droplet nuclei. And so again, even the, even particles that don't begin as airborne size can evaporate to become airborne size. And, and that's why there's really no, you know, hard and fast rule with this. Once, once you know it can happen, I think you need to assume that these particles can be airborne and then dictate your barrier and PPE methods based on that. So given what you're telling me, how do you see your patients that you will have to do a nasal endoscopy? I mean, I understand your study and knowing some of the limitations, though, but then after what you're telling me with the fact that a sneezing can generate some of the aerosols or the smaller particles that may not be contained within your surgical mask or even the vent, how are you seeing patients? So first of all, there is reasonable literature that even airborne particles, even five micron particles, are retained by a surgical mask. And so even though our study didn't look at that, other studies have. And those studies have actually looked at viral particles specifically, and specifically coronaviral particles. And so I do think that there are no 100%, obviously, but I do think that wearing an appropriately fitted mask will reduce even the airborne-sized particles. And so to answer your question, when we sort of ramp back up to seeing patients, which we're clearly not, as I'm sure most people are not, as a provider, this is in the setting of of a status that I like to call unknown COVID status. Mm-hmm. And that means why I use that term because that term will change over time, right? You know, right now a patient may have an RT-PCR test that says they're negative, but they may have a 25 or or a 30% false negative rate. So in my mind, they're still unknown. Now, once we have antibody studies, that rate will change 
So the, the, the rate of quote unquote unknown status will change over time. But let's just assume we don't know or we're not confident. So in those patients, as a provider, I will wear an N95 and face mask with gown and gloves, as well as eye protection. And then as a, on the patient side, we will make them a, one of these vent masks and we will scope them through the vent mask. And so I think between the vent mask and the provider PPE, that should provide a significant amount of amelioration of contamination such that we can start to slowly ramp patients back up into clinics. Okay, so there was also the second half of your study where you looked at the surgical conditions. Can you go into some of those and describe these studies? Again, going back to the sort of physiology of aerosols, as I mentioned previously, once you're in the surgical state, at least, and this is in a, under, a patient under general anesthesia is intubated, with an endotracheal tube in and the cuff up, you have now excluded the lower airway aerosols. So now when we think about aerosol generation, what we really are talking about is the instruments themselves. So do the devices that we use generate speeds and particle velocities at the level that are going to generate both particles of size and speed that are potential contaminants? And so we sort of thought about this in a, a methodical manner, going from the procedures least likely to meet those criteria, and that being sort of cold instrumentation, mm-hmm. let's just say, you know, grabbing something with a Blakesley or a through cut, and then moving up through a powered instrumentation with a suction at relatively, when I say relative, I mean relative to the drill setting, so relative low RPM oscillation, so a microdebreeder in that situation, and then finally a high-speed drill going at 70,000 RPM with no suction. So what we found was when we think about the cold instrumentation, we did not see any contamination or any aerosol droplets forming outside of the patient. And that was not that surprising just based on our you know, initial findings and our understandings of how aerosols work. On the other end of the spectrum, we found that the drill clearly generated aerosols that spread pretty far outside of the patient over 20 centimeters. And it did so regardless of where in the nose we were drilling, first of all, and that's what we reported. So both Hmm. post-ear drilling as well as drilling of the nasal beak as something, for example, if you're doing a a draft three, both of those generated aerosols. But we even when, and this was not reported, but just anecdotally, even when we tried to do things like occlude the airway or put a wet gauze over the nostrils, the aerosols still were able to come out. And I think the point there is, and I've heard a lot of people ask me about, well, what if we occlude the nostrils? What if we put bacitracin in the nostrils Mm -hmm. or various things? I think the long and the short of it is when you have a drill going at 70,000 RPM, those interventions are just not going to be adequate to give you peace of mind that you're not generating those contaminants. And so I think that's an open question of how best to mitigate that. Now, the middle ground, which was, I think, the most surprising, was that we, when we looked at the microdebreeder, we did not see any contamination. And we, we did this. We actually looked by microdebreeding the posterior septum, the anterior septum, and then even dunking the microdebreeder in the tissues and then removing it from the nose and, and then activating it outside of the nose. And so I think that, for me, gives me some reassurance that the microdebreeder is not going to create at least gross contamination. Mm-hmm. We still don't know down to the five micron level whether, whether aerosols are generated at that size. And I think that study needs to be done. But at least at a minimum, you know, I think that, that the results give me some measure of comfort. And I don't want anybody to take this and say that, that they can absolutely go ahead and use their microdebreeder in clinic or in the OR with no PPE in place and feel comfortable with that. 
this was a simulation study that has limitations. Our detection range was, was only down to 20 microns, but the objective data is what it is. And so I think we have to start with that and then expand upon that. Well, bringing up, um, Ben, one of the points that you made earlier about, as you see in Doc Matters and other sort of social forum, people have talked about, you know, as you mentioned, some of the maybe putting some occlusion mechanism or something. What about uh, putting in a suction close to your drill? Did you guys try that to see if that helps at all? We used a non-suctioning high-speed drill, the Midas Rex. Some of the things we talked about in the study was maybe putting in a flexible nasopharyngeal suction, but putting it on continuous suction during the case to both reduce fluid because that also t- tended to increase contamination, but also to your point, I think to, to sort of direct airflow deep into the nose and nasopharynx. So that is one possible mitigation strategy. We did not test a suction drill, and I think that that is something we want to test in the future because, again, with the microdebrider, I think having the distal suction right at the tip actually was helpful to reduce aerosolization. But I think those things just need to be rigorously tested. Excellent. I think, like you said, it may not necessarily, at least right now, change the way people are approaching patients, especially, as you mentioned, the whole asymptomatic patient. Hopefully, some of the data coming out helps reduce some of the anxiety, understanding that there are ones that are a little bit higher risk and ones that are significantly less risk associated with some of the aerosolization and and some of the understanding there. My question, what are your future studies that you're anticipating? You mentioned maybe doing some studies with the suction and the drill. Have you looked at like a cobalator or some sort of cauterization? Because that's another thing that we may have to address more urgently, which would be people who are epistaxis, those kind of situations. Yeah, great question. That was the other big category of surgical instrumentation that we did not look at were thermal devices. So not just cobalator, but electrocautery, laser, and even exactly. ultrasound. And these things have been looked at in, the, in general in the literature as far as particulate size generation. And as I think we're all aware, you know, HPV, for example, is detectable in laser plumes during respiratory papillomatosis surgery. Right. So I think those are all open questions. I think for me, the next most pressing need is to start to look actually down at the airborne level size particles, the sub-5 micron particles. And for that, you really need specialized equipment and instrumentation that is not just readily available in any cadaver lab. So we're looking into the best practices for that type of equipment. So those studies are forthcoming. So that, I think, is is sort of the next on the agenda. The other thing, I think, is going to then be integrating this with testing and really understanding what how we can layer in different protective types of behaviors, so testing, provider barriers, and then patient barriers to create the safest environment possible as we move forward and, and hope for better treatments and then ultimately vaccines for this. One thing I would mention is that, at least from my perspective, I, I in addition to sort of these occlusive measures, I've heard a lot of folks talk about different things they want to try, things, for example, like the iodine solution for the nose Mm -hmm. and those types of things. And my takeaway is, you know, all these ideas are great, but they need to be tested. You know, I think that to just blindly apply one treatment or one solution that has been used in one area or one part of the body to our area without appropriate testing, I think will lead to some potential negative outcomes. And so I think that as a society and as a community, There are a lot of smart people out there. I think we have the capacity to do a lot of good studies over the next few months because, again, there's a lot we don't know. But I would just caution people of sort of jumping in using different types of 
methodologies with, without really testing them because we would hate to find out that somebody utilized something because they thought it was safe and it turned out they were wrong. Agreed. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, unfortunately, when people get anxious, they may jump to things and, and try to jump on a solution without the proper data, and I, I completely agree with your assessment there. The other thing that your study sort of highlighted to me, and I don't know if you had a chance to think about this, is the fact that do you think that the way, I mean, even after we get past this pandemic, we have a vaccine and, and so forth, my my thoughts are, do you think that we have kind of permanently changed the way we see patients, meaning maybe we should even going forward wear a mask? Uh, even before this pandemic, I would just do my nasal endoscopy with no protection on myself or the patient. I guess going forward, I, this sort of highlights a lot of the things that, you know, I would aerosolize my topical medications, Afrin and lidocaine. Is that something that maybe we may be really looking at and and maybe uh, revising some of our current practices? My guess is yes, but probably not for the reasons that you might think. I I do think that what this has done is made us all acutely aware of what we're actually doing as far as contamination of both ourselves and the patients in the room and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yes, just because as a group we have a better understanding of that, that will change some practices. But I actually think this will take more of a formal shape uh, from the regulatory framework. I think that now that these studies are coming out, there's going to be more of a infectious disease control type of regulations that are probably going to mandate that we do a lot of these things differently. I think like most things, the pressure may come from external to our society to implement a lot of these things directly as a result of the data that we're going to be generating. And ultimately, I think that's a good thing. I mean, you know, we'll be we'll yeah. be better protecting ourselves and better protecting future generations of ENTs. So I do think it will change, but I think that change will be to some extent forced upon us, whether we want to or not. Agree. Thank you, Ben, for your time and your added insight into your group study. And I look forward to hearing more from you guys. So it sounds like you're already in the process of working on some of these studies. So please be safe. Thank you again. Thank you too, Amber. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.